ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. We knew that he had passed away when the Sydney went down and that is all we knew. That's all we were ever told. The grave was forgotten about, the location was unknown. People couldn't comprehend that 645 men and their ship would disappear without trace. His was the one body that had been recovered and had been sitting on a, you know, unmarked grave in Christmas Island for 60, 70 years. A lost ship, a lost sailor, a lost identity. Hello, Kirsty Melville with you. And today on the History Listen, we bring you a lost and found story spanning eight decades. In November 1941, as World War II drew closer to Australia, the HMAS Sydney and its crew of 645 sailors disappeared without a trace off the coast of WA after it was ambushed by a disguised German raider. Almost three months later, and thousands of miles away, the body of just one sailor washed up on the shores of the tiny Christmas island. Buried as war approached, his body was later lost in the tropical cemetery. Decades later, the discovery of this unknown sailor set in motion a chain of events that unravelled the mystery of how the pride of Australia's Navy, the HMAS Sydney, had just vanished. And there's even more to this Daisy Chain story of Lost and Found. This is the first time we've been able to say his name on the anniversary of the sinking of the HMAS Sydney. First time ever. Only in the last few years, have the final pieces of this wartime puzzle finally fallen into place. Annie Haswell heads to Christmas Island to track down the story of the unknown sailor. One afternoon, when looking out to sea, we noticed a large concentration of seabirds circling and diving about two or three miles away. Somehow their behaviour seemed a little abnormal. That's the voice of Joseph Bunny Baker. He was wireless operator on Christmas Island during the war. And here he's recalling one particular incident in early February 1942. By using binoculars, we were able to make out an object on the surface of the water, which was attracting their attention. Three of us took one of the small launches and put to sea. As we drew nearer to the object, it was seen to be a Carly float with about six inches of water in it, plus a body, lying with arms outstretched. It was obvious that the float had been at sea for quite some time, for there was much weed growth, both inside and on the outside. Bunny Baker's discovery happened 80 years ago, but the current generation of Christmas Islanders, like Karen Singer, still know the story of that day. If we turn around and look out to sea through the jungle thicket, you can see that in Flying Fish Cove, he was sort of seen from the cliffs over 
in that direction. That's where we actually had um, guns and lookouts and the Kali raft was over to the right in an area known as Rocky Point where they saw the first seabird action and they went out to recover the raft and his body. And at a time when they were watching out to sea, for who, knew, who knew what, and for submarines as well? It would have been submarines. They were very much aware that the Japanese were looking at Christmas Island. People here felt that invasion was imminent. The dead sailor had arrived on a Kali float, a form of invertible life raft used on warships. The biggest news in Australia at the time was the tragic and mysterious disappearance of the HMAS Sydney off the WA coast just three months earlier. We will never know the story of the raft's voyage or how far it had travelled before reaching us. Thinking back, it may have come from the HMAS Sydney, which had been engaged in that theatre of the war. They treated the unknown sailor at the time with respect um, and gave him a proper burial. And that's where we are standing now, um, where he was buried back in 1942. We carried him up to the hillside to a lovely quiet site overlooking the cove and surrounded by a Massenbogen villa. The district officer conducted a short service whilst we few volunteers provided a military escort. A policeman sounded the last post and the notes floated down the hillside to the shore in the quiet evening. It was a very sombre escort that returned down the hill and the war seemed to be getting a little closer. Two weeks later, the Japanese dropped the first shells on Christmas Island. Time, war and wild tropical weather meant that after a while, no one remembered exactly where the mystery sailor lay. The grave was forgotten about, the location was unknown, there was, there was talk about it. So if you look around here, it's at the edge of the old European cemetery, which had been lost in time. Which is very gothic, isn't it? The jungle, the jungle's moving <laughs> the jungle, in. The jungle's moving in, um, and it had actually moved in. And the people who had been here had long gone, and they had some records, but it wasn't very clear. It certainly wasn't GPS or anything like that. As the unknown man lay forgotten in the Christmas Island graveyard, shock over the sinking of the Sydney reverberated down through the years. Arguments and theories raged for decades over what had really happened to the ship. My name's Glennis MacDonald. I live in Western Australia and I've been researching HMAS Sydney for 30 plus years. Glennis MacDonald used to run a caravan park on the coast north of Geraldton where she heard lots of local stories and memories about the night the Sydney went down. That's what first piqued her interest. Over 30 years, she became a major player in the search for answers. She tells the story of what happened to the Sydney as it returned home to Fremantle from escort duty on that fateful night, when it came across what looked like a Dutch merchant ship, the Cormoran, but was actually a disguised and heavily armed German raider. Initially, she set off to investigate a normal Dutch merchant ship. Over a, an hour and a half, there was a cat and mouse game drawing Sydney closer. She had to come within the, the guns of a, a raider to read flag signals in the setting sun. 
I think um, she was very suspicious and I personally think she was attempting to stop the ship and board, um, thinking it was probably a German supply ship when they opened fire from only a thousand yards apart and the result was horrific for Sydney and also the Cormoran's engine room was out of action and she was also dead in the water. But of course her men had time to um, get off the ship. Sydney was seen sailing to the southeast, trying to stay afloat and trying to make Geraldton and unfortunately she was so badly damaged and so peppered with holes uh, that the sea overcame her and down she went to the bottom. It wasn't until the first boatload of Germans were picked up that the alarm bells started going and Sydney was asked to break radio silence and, of course, nothing. It was six days before the shocking news was made public. HMAS Sydney has been in action with a heavily armed enemy merchant raider no subsequent communication has been received that she must be presumed lost. People were horrified because Sydney was the pride of our fleet. She had excelled in the Mediterranean, finishing off um, two Italian warships, one of them the fastest warship on the ocean at the time. I think we all thought that she was somehow magical, the pride of the fleet, invincible, and people couldn't comprehend that 645 men and their ship would disappear without trace. So when you've got a vacuum of information and the only information coming from the then enemy, conspiracy theories will fill that vacuum. And they did. There were rumours of a military cover-up by government, of distress signals ignored, that a Japanese submarine was partly responsible. The problem was the only witnesses were the German survivors from the Cormoran. Many Australians did not want to believe their version. 645 families from the HMAS Sydney's losses were grieving and looking for answers, and that grieving went on through the generations. The mystery of the Sydney just wouldn't go away. Eventually, half a century later, pressure from the families led to two major inquiries. The first, in 1998, was an inquiry by the Joint Standing Committee for Foreign Affairs, Defence and Trade. It dismissed the conspiracy theories and decided the German accounts of the battle should be believed. Still, it was hard for Australian families to accept that with so many men on board, there were no survivors and not even any bodies. Except there was one body. The Christmas Island sailor, the only link to the Sydney, lay lost but not forgotten in his lonely tropical resting place. And Glenys MacDonald began a push to have his body found and exhumed. Why was it so important that he be found? I just felt that it was important to bring our men home when we can and extremely important, if it was possible, to at least identify one of those 645 men for the family. A search in 2001 failed to find the body, but Glenys MacDonald had pushed hard for a second try. 
She was certain from her own research into photos taken back in the 1940s that she knew where the body could be found. When the government and the Navy agreed to try again in 2006, she wasn't able to be there, but she was keeping a very close eye on things from her home in Western Australia, constantly on the phone to the searchers. They dug six trenches. I had asked them the month before to focus on a strange gap, which I believe, because the body was buried in a box or a coffin to conform with him in a sitting position and buried looking out over the cove, I thought the gap was the ideal space for him. Unfortunately, after seven days of digging and and lengthening these trenches, The team were ready to give up. I pleaded that they not leave before they checked the gaps and as soon as they started digging in the gap, they found rotted timber from a coffin and nails and very soon after that, they found the body. Karen Singer was there that day on Christmas Island watching the search. There was a a lot of excitement. I was very privileged enough to just somehow be standing here at the grave um, when they uh, exhumed his skull and I remember the the forensic people noticing a hole in his forehead which they said he's been shot subsequently they found out that wasn't the case and it's another sort of injury which is unknown I believe that He was blown overboard during the battle by the piece of shrapnel that hit him in the head and he was in the water. My theory is that there were other men also blown overboard that were in the water and I believe he was lifted into that Kali float. He was already near death um, because he was in the Kali float on his knees, which is not a normal position. There were others in the float, at least one other, because there were two sorts of shoes in the float when it was found. The currents take anything north, and given the speed of the currents, he was going to always pass by Christmas Island about 11 weeks later, and luckily he was seen, otherwise he would have gone into nothing. An Australian Navy team believes it may have found the remains of a sailor from HMAS Sydney, which sank off the Western Australian coast during World War II. We've got uh, a shoulder bone that's been identified by the anthropologists. Uh, A section of skull has been identified. The leader of the Navy team, Jim Parsons, says they believe they've discovered the grave, but it will be a long and difficult process to try to identify the remains. They will be removed and then taken back to Sydney, where they will be very carefully examined, and we will attempt, uh, with the limited records we have, to make an identification. Identification was going to be a lot more difficult than anyone realised, but the discovery of the unknown sailor did bring closure of sorts. He was buried in Geraldton War Cemetery and his grave became at least a monument to the terrible loss of the Sydney. When we found him, of course, there was lots of newspaper coverage and they always ended with, well, now we should find his shipmates. There were plenty of conflicting theories and much argument about where the wreck of the Sydney may be found. The federal government agreed to fund a search off the West Australian coast, north of Geraldton 
where the German witnesses said they had last seen the burning ship on the horizon. In March 2008, the SV Geosounder, skippered by well-known US wreck hunter David Meehan's, headed off. As a 62-year-old who'd never been to sea before, sailing on a, a fairly small 57-metre <laughs> survey vessel through two cyclones was interesting. Glenis McDonnell was now a director of the Finding Sydney Foundation and she was on board as well. Three days into the search, they came across the wreck of the German ship, the Cormoran. That was pure relief for me because people were saying we were searching in the wrong area. And then four days later, we found Sydney. Those four days were pretty terrible because we'd found a whole lot of debris that we thought could have been Sydney blown to smithereens. And I knew that wouldn't give anybody closure. So when we actually found the wreck, I just ran up two decks above to look down into the ocean. And all I could think about was the relatives that I'd come to know and what this was going to mean for them. It would be bittersweet, there'd be tears, but there would be relief because they finally had a spot on the map. One of the country's longest-running wartime mysteries has been solved with the discovery of the wreck of HMAS Sydney. This is um, a um, historic day for all Australians and it's a sad day for all Australians as we confirm the discovery of HMAS Sydney. The Sydney was found on the seabed 12 nautical miles southeast of the Cormoran, 112 nautical miles off the West Australian coast. How did it feel looking at that image of the, the ship under the water? Ah, oh, it, she was, <laughs> she, I'm going to cry. <laughs> she was beautiful and poignant, really. Um, she was sitting upright on the seafloor and you could tell straight away that it was Sydney because merchant ships are much wider. A small portion of the bow had broken off and was about 400 metres away. But she was sitting upright. I mean, she could have been upside down on her side, whatever, but she, she just looked like she'd been waiting for us for 67 years to find her. The ship's discovery was followed by a monumental inquiry which was able to at last supply some answers. The coal inquiry determined that 70% of those 645 men would have been killed or incapacitated in the first 10 minutes of the battle, which meant a lot of them were trapped in the ship. Of the 200 that might have been at the stern of um, Sydney, if they entered the water, the life jackets that they wore would only support them for a maximum of 18 hours. And if they fell asleep before then, they'd drown. Um, when a body um, drowns, it sinks to the bottom. And out there, it's two and a half kilometres deep. So they would never have risen to the top to be floating on the water to be found. So that's why there were no bodies. The wreck of the Sydney was declared a war grave. It's very important to understand that this is a tomb. Um, there are 645 Australian sailors 
entombed there and uh, these war dead will be treated with complete respect. But the last part of the HMAS Sydney puzzle was yet to be solved. The unknown sailor's identity was a riddle the DNA experts were having trouble with. The Navy came to us and said, we've got these remains, we hear you guys are good at getting DNA out of, out of degraded human remains, uh, and we've also got three sailors who we think this, these set of remains have come from. Associate Professor Jeremy Austin is Director of the Australian Centre for Ancient DNA at the University of Adelaide. We thought it was going to be an easy job, DNA from the remains, which turned out to be not that challenging, DNA from maternal relatives of those three sailors, and one of those would have matched and we would have had the whole thing solved. Uh, But unfortunately, we didn't get a match, so we went back to the Navy and the Navy said, oh, okay, we've got another short list of 16 sailors who we think uh, the sailor might be. There were plenty of clues in the DNA that should have narrowed the search. Uh, Some features of the clothing, the remains of the clothing that were found in the grave, suggested that the sailor might have been an officer. He had some unusual wear patterns on the ends of his lower leg bones, which they are commonly found in people uh, from Southeast Asia who tend to squat lots as opposed to sitting on chairs. Um, So it was suggested someone who might have uh, spent a lot of time squatting, Uh, They suggested like a rugby player or a rower. Um, He had a lot of gold fillings in his mouth, like literally lots of gold (laughs) fillings in his mouth. So he probably came from a relatively wealthy family. Ancient DNA has to be tracked through an unbroken line of female relatives. And the next shortlist of sailors' descendants also drew a blank. At that point, which was probably around 2010, we realised... We've excluded 19 sailors, but there's 620-odd left. Was there ever going to be a point that you gave up? Uh, No, but I didn't think I might have to pass the project on to someone younger if and when we were still testing people and I got to the age where I had to retire. A couple of times I thought, well, what if he was uh, smuggled on board or he wasn't on the crew list or at the last minute he'd done a switcheroo with a friend? So that, that entered our heads a couple of times. Jeremy was also casting the net wider. Whenever he spoke to community genealogy groups, he would share with them the mitochondrial code that he was trying to match. And this led to a breakthrough. The day after one of these family history group meetings, someone emailed Jeremy to say they had a match with a Scottish woman born in 1810. The challenge was then to find some connection between her and the unknown sailor. It was a job Jeremy handed over to Navy researcher Greg Swindon. Within, I don't know, two or three days, Greg had found this line of, unbroken line of female uh, ancestors going back in time to the lady born in Scotland in 1810, and then down back to the, almost to the present day, to a woman who had a son who, who was Thomas Wellsby Clark, and Thomas Wellsby Clark was an able seaman on the HMA Sydney. And at that point, uh, Greg phoned me up and said, well, I think we found him. We were originally told about the body being found. A number of descriptions came out about his height, his dental records, and the fact that he had spurs on his heels. These spurs were indicative of someone who squats. 
Pam Fisher is Thomas Wellsby Clark's niece. When we found out it was Uncle Tom, I thought, ha! Dad used to squat the whole time on top of the cliffs looking out to sea. It was just one thing, yeah, of course that's Uncle Tom. That's what Dad used to do. It's been a long DNA journey yes. to get to this point. What were your feelings when you found out that you, it was your relative that yeah. was found? Yes, there was elation to start with. But then I'm thinking, what about all those other families who have been hoping that it's their relative? Thank you all for coming to join us today to inaugurate our memorial to able seaman Thomas Wellsby Clark, formerly known only as the unknown sailor who drifted on a life raft to Christmas Island almost... In November 2022, on the 81st anniversary of the sinking of the HMAS Sydney, Christmas Islanders invited Thomas Wellsby Clark's relatives to the island. It is now my honour to ask Pamela Clark, niece of able seaman Thomas Wellsby Clark, to speak on behalf of the Clark family. We would like to express our gratitude for the dignity, respect and kindness shown to our Uncle Tom when he finally found his way here. We're very aware this is the first time we've been able to say his name on the anniversary of the sinking of the HMS Sydney. First time ever. That's Shy Manager Chris Sue, one of many who helped make this day and this memorial a reality. Christmas Island is a small and close community, and they regard this story as very much their own. Students at the island's only school researched the unknown sailor. Some interviewed elderly Chinese relatives who had memories of that day in 1942 when the raft and its sad cargo floated in. Student Matthew Sambell created a song which played at this ceremony. The currents they pull as I drift along these endless seas on my cauliflower floor, helpless to the When that young man's song was sung, there weren't many dry eyes. They really were not, me included. All the things that, that I've thought about Uncle Tom while he was on that blasted Carly float thinking oh, how horrendous, how long did he suffer on that boat and, you know, thinking of his family and wanting to be home with his family and all those words are in that song. Matthew just did it perfectly, absolutely. Someday I will find a rest when these waters come I will be laid down in my loved one's arms it's very important that you observe the rules and obligations that you have to people that you share the world with, beings that have come across your way. It is a very important part of how we understand the universe to operate on Christmas Island, and it is uh, with great joy that we can invite the descendants over to um, come and uh, see where he lay and where we looked after him for so many years, and uh, to round off that story, an unknown sailor no more. 
You've been listening to The Unknown Sailor, which was produced by Annie Hastwell. Sound engineering today was by Tom Henry, and the supervising producer was Michelle Rayner. I'm Kirsty Melville. Thanks for your company on the History Listen. I hope you can join me again next time when we uncover another gem from the past. See you then. I long for my family. I will see them soon. I will find rest when You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.